Well, good morning and welcome to Journey Church. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. Really glad to be with you this morning and, and really glad that you would actually come inside this morning. I realize that it is fantastic out there and I've just been so impressed with you as a church over the last month where like this is not normal. For those of you moving to Oregon, this is not normal. October does not look like this, but you're still showing up for church on the most beautiful Sunday mornings in October that we've ever seen. And I don't know if, if you feel this way, but th it feels strange, right? I think it's awkwardly nice outside yesterday for it to be like 85 was just bizarre. I don't think the trees know what to do with it. I, I don't know if you're seeing this at your house. The birds are acting very weird at my house. They're doing things I've never seen them do before. They're eating weird berries and just like, I don't know if they're, they're something in those berries, but they're just acting strange. <laughs> And I, and I look around and I've seen some of you coming in just looking a little bit twitchy, a little bit just like, I need to wear flannel. I need to wear, I need to put a sweater on or a sweatshirt on. I can tell like you are ready for fall and it just feels strange and awkward. But similarly, maybe to transition, doesn't it feel a little bit weird to be jumping into this portion of scripture in John in this time of year? To be looking at Holy Week in the fall. To be talking about Easter in October. It's, it's a little bit strange and feels a little bit awkward. But again, for those of you who aren't from Oregon originally or haven't been here for very long, this isn't normal. And things are going to change. Similarly in, in John's gospel, but the weather is going to change. The rain is going to come. The leaves are going to die and they will fall off the trees eventually and it will begin to get, the days will begin to get shorter and colder and darker. And so will John's gospel. Like as we read today, we're going to see darkness begin to overshadow the story of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ that John tells us. But as we read in the first chapter of John's gospel, that darkness will not overcome it. So this morning, if you are willing and able, I'd love to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 19, and so if you brought a Bible, I'd encourage you to open that up. John chapter 19, verses 1 to 22. There it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and other officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, these words, maybe not so much in John, but certainly in some of the other, other gospels, these can be hard and difficult words for us to read especially if we read them with just even a hint of imagination, just even trying to place ourselves somewhat in that circumstance that Jesus found himself in and all the events that took place in what we just simply read in, in about 22 verses. Because here in, in this passage, we see that Jesus is, is flogged. And John just says, they took him and they flogged him. But he gives no details. And, and if you have notes in your Bible, if you get on and research flogging, you understand that, that it is a horrendous act of torture using a whip that at the end of the whip typically had either like shards of bone or slabs of metal that when struck to skin would then rip skin off of one's back or front wherever they were whipping you with this whip. And so Jesus was flogged and he was beaten and he had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He had a robe placed around his shoulders. He was was mocked and, and we read in other gospels that he was spit on and he was yelled at and he was uh, falsely hailed as, as king of the Jews. And then he was forced to pick up his cross, carry it towards a place called the skull. And it was on that hill that he was lifted up on the cross and left to die. Even if we just put a, just a small amount of imagination into that scene it's overwhelming. It's so hard for us to maybe take in and even understand exactly what Jesus went through in that moment. And our typical response, maybe even as you were reading this, maybe your response is, man, that's sad. It's, it's disheartening. I feel like, like almost remorse and, and shame from the part that I would play, that, that my brokenness, that my sin and shame actually would play a part in Jesus having to go through such a thing. Like, like there's a range of emotions that we might feel when we read these types of passages talking about Jesus going to the cross and be lift, being lifted up on the cross and they're dying upon the cross. And yet as we read 
John's gospel, which we've been for almost, well, over a year now, and we'll be finishing up in, in about a month or so, I think John is actually trying to, to bring up a different response in us. He's trying to get us to look at this maybe a little bit differently than we see in some of the other gospels. And as we'll see in, in a little bit, it's because I think John maybe knows something that not everybody knows. So if you've been following along with us, you know that, that we've been reading John for a long time. And one of the things that I've talked about or we have talked about is that for John, as he writes this story, and again, he's, he's writing this story, that the details, they matter to John. Like the details of the story, the little minute details that might just seem like no big deal as we're reading, they're actually significant almost every time. And, and John puts them in there on purpose. He wants us to, to notice them. He wants us to see them. It's because John isn't just simply writing a history. He's not just telling us like the history of, of the life of Jesus, but he's actually writing a story. It's, it's the story of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good news of, of Jesus. But he's writing it as a, a story. And, and his story, it has a purpose. And we've talked about this again months ago. But at the end of John's gospel, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John gives us the, the reason for this story. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, from the very beginning, from when John says, in the beginning was the word, and then all the way through his gospel, and all the way until the, the very end, at the end of chapter 21, John is revealing to those who are reading and those who are listening, he is revealing Jesus. And he is inviting those that are, that are reading and those who are listening to this story, this gospel of Jesus, to, to come and see to come and believe, to come and follow. And those of you who have been around, you know, these are the, what we've been calling this sermon series. But these are the things that, that John is inviting the readers of his gospel into, to come and see, come and believe, come and follow, and then to enter in and experience Jesus. Not just Jesus, the teacher, not just Jesus, the friend, not just Jesus, this great guy, but Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the King, Jesus, the Son of God. Like, we don't always understand, like, who what the Messiah is. That's not a word that we use very often except when we're looking at, at our scriptures, right? When we're reading from the Bible and we're like, oh, the, Jesus is the Messiah. But, but the Messiah was such a big deal to those that were Jewish in that time and those who like, interacted with Jesus at that time. Like Peter even like, identified Jesus as the Messiah and, and the Son of God. And this Messiah, he was the promised rescuer for Israel, Israel, who would redeem them and release them and set them free from all captivity. And they thought this was going to be fantastic. And they knew that this Messiah, that the Messiah was going to be anointed. Just like David, King David was anointed with oil and Saul as well. Like these kings were anointed because they were going to rule and reign and rescue their people. And yet they all failed. And so they were waiting for the real Messiah, the real promised king to come. And in John's gospel... We begin to see, especially in chapters 18 and 19, that the king is here. We'll look at some verses up on the screen. These are just verses from last week and then on this week. And I'm just going to kind of breeze through these because they're kind of just picked out of, of what we've already read. But 
just notice how king and kingdom are described and spoken and, and heard. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews in John 18, 33? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. Then Jesus answered, again, this is later in John 18, you say that I am a king. And then in verse, chapter 19, verse 2, it says, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And then in verse 5 of 19, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And then in verse 12, the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And then in verse 19 or 14, Pilate says, Here is your king. And they respond in verse 15, shall, or he says, shall I crucify your king? And they reply, we have no king but Caesar. And then this kind of just tops it all off. At the end, it says, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You see, apart from, I think, chapters 18 and 19, apart from these passages that we read last week and this week, we get very little king and kingdom language in John's gospel. This isn't like the, the, his entire focus, although he's, he's trying to help us to see and to believe and understand that, that Jesus is the Messiah King. It's really only here in John chapter 18 and 19 that he begins to use king language. He says the word king and kingdom and then things that would be used for a king's crowns and robes and hailing. It's all very clear in this moment that John is, is pointing something out to us that maybe we don't understand. He's painting a picture of actually what I think is really happening in this moment. That as Jesus is led and lifted up and suffering on the cross, it was actually more than just punishment. It was more than just paying of a debt. It was more than just a, a, a penal sacrifice and, and a penal payment, a, a, a redeeming of, of those that owed a high price. It was all of those things. Don't misunderstand me. It was all of the things, but it was not simply limited to a payment or a punishment or a penal sacrifice. You see, John knows that more was happening in this moment, that in this moment, it was the inauguration of a new king, and it was the inauguration of a new kingdom. Listen to how N.T. Wright captures this. He says, we have, alas, belittled the cross, imagining it merely as a mechanism for getting us off the hook of our own petty naughtiness or as an example of some general benevolent truth. It is much, much more. It is the moment when the story of Israel reaches its climax, the moment when at last the watchmen on Jerusalem's walls see their God coming in his kingdom. The moment when the people of God are renewed so as to be at last the royal priesthood who will take over the world, not with the power or with the love of power, but with the power of love. The moment when the kingdom of God overcomes the kingdoms of the world is the moment when a great old door locked and barred since our first disobedience 
swings open suddenly to reveal not just the garden, open once more to our delight, but the coming, coming city, the garden city that God has always planned and is now inviting us to go through the door and build with him. You see, I think John, I think he knew something and I think he saw something that others didn't in this moment of Jesus suffering and death on the cross. Maybe the question is, how did he know? If your Bible is still open, flip back to John chapter 32. Or sorry, Mark, there's no John chapter 32, by the way. That was a test and nobody even caught it. <laughs> Go back to Mark chapter 10. Those, are, those two things aren't even close. But they'll give you a chance to practice flipping back in your Bible. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And listen to, listen to this story, this conversation that, that Jesus has with John and James. And maybe, maybe it'll seem familiar to you. It says, so they were now on the way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to, to describe everything that was about to happen. And, I mean, this is amazing. I mean, this is Jesus as, as the prophet as well as, as the Messiah King. But he says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priest and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days... He will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one at your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You are are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. So here, Jesus, I mean, just exactly on point predicts what will soon happen to him. And from that, I don't know how, but from that, James and John, they have a follow-up question. He says, they said, like, when you were, will you put that back up there, that first slide? Second slide, sorry, my bad. It says, when you sit on your glorious throne... Right? So they're asking, like, when you come into your kingdom, when you become king, can we have, like, can we pick a seat? Can we have the seat on your right and, and the seat on your left? It's, it's a strange question that, that after Jesus would predict his suffering and his death, that they would say, hey, well, when you become king, when you enter into your glory, when your kingdom comes, can we have the seat on your right and the seat on, on your left? And Jesus' first response is that you don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand what it will take for me to enter into my glory, to sit upon this glorious throne. It will come with suffering. It will come with death. Like, are you able to do that? And they'll go, yeah, no problem. They have no idea, right? They don't know what they're talking about. 
But Jesus said, someday you will. Someday you will experience the, the suffering and the, and the baptism that, that I will be going through. And then he, the second thing is he says, is, well, those seats are taken, which just seems interesting. He's like, I don't, I don't have the authority to give those two seats to you, the seat on the right and the seat on the left. I don't have the authority to give them to you because those two seats are, have already been reserved. They're already taken. Well, I, they're, there's already two people that are going to be sitting in those two seats is what Jesus is, is telling John and, and James in this moment. And see, John and James, they didn't know how the Messiah would enter his kingdom. And that when he did, that the places on the right and the left, they would already be taken. They didn't realize that. Or even who they would be taken by. I mean, that's the question, right? Jesus says, I don't have the authority to give these seats away. Well, who has them? Whose seats are they? Well, let's go back to John chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. And we already read this, but let's look at it again. He says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side. And hold on for just a second there, Heather. One on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Like, this is the moment. This is the moment when Jesus is becoming king, where he is being inaugurated, and his kingdom is being inaugurated, as he is being lifted up onto a, a, a wooden cross that would be his throne in, in a sense, in a horrible sense. This is the moment. And at that moment, go ahead and go to the next slide. If we can. If not, I can just read it. Any luck? Oh, there it is. Oh, we'll get there. Oh, maybe I didn't put it in there. One more, maybe? Two more? Sorry. The, the moment, the climactic moment has passed. So. <laughs> like we were all, we were all, you guys were just like on the edge of your seats. Like what's, what's going to happen? So here it is, right? So there they crucified him with, it says there they crucified him and with him two others. One on each side, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus, Jesus was in the middle. You see, when, when John, or sorry, when Jesus answered James and John, he knew that his glory, he knew that his kingdom would not come in his most powerful moment. Rather, it would come at his most painful. It would come on, on the cross. And that when he would come into his kingdom in this moment, it would be through suffering and it would be through death. And he would have someone on his right and he would have someone on his left, but it wouldn't be James and it wouldn't be John. It would be two, for us, unknown criminals whose seats were reserved, in a sense, and took that place. And, and John and James, they would get their turn eventually to experience the, the baptism that Jesus talked about, to experience suffering. And here's the thing that I just found fascinating as I was looking at this story, is that when, we, is that when John was sitting down to write this story, when he was writing this story, like I think John had a different vision of what was taking place in the midst of it. 
and certainly John probably felt some, some guilt and some remorse and some shame and some sadness because he knew that, that Jesus was dying on the cross. But he also knew that when, when Pilate thought he was making mockery of Jesus and of the Jews, and when the Jews thought that they were just getting rid of and disposing of Jesus, what was really happening, John knew what was really happening on that cross was the coronation of a king. His name was Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In fact, in this moment, it's, it's, I think it's kind of fascinating. I think Pilate actually becomes the first person to ever proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Now, that word gospel, when we hear, we often think it's like this, this statement or formula that we have to tell and to explain what happens in order for us to be saved and go to heaven, right? It's like all the things, like I'm a sinner, Jesus came, died on the cross, and, and now I, if I put my faith in him, I, I go to, I'm set free from all my sin and, and redeemed, and then I, I end up going to heaven. And, and that is part of the, the narrative and part of the story, but there's so much more to it. You see, the, the gospel, when the word that gospel in Greek is euangelion, which actually had nothing to do with like, like a, a formula for, for reaching heaven or, or to being redeemed with Christ. It was actually the, the word that was used to pronounce a new king or a new kingdom. It was a, a word of, of good news for the, all the people in the area because they knew that because of some, this good news, everything in the world was about to change. And when new kings were put in the throne and one was disposed of or one was killed or one was however that happened, they would send out their, their men and, and they would go out into every village and they would pronounce a new king and a new kingdom. It was this gospel, this euangelion, the, the good news that Pilate posted above Jesus as he was raised and lifted up upon his throne. Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Like this was, was the moment when Jesus became king. It was the moment when everything changed. And I think for us, like maybe the question is, okay, that's, that's cool, that's interesting, that's fascinating, thank you for, thank you for sharing, but what, what's, what's next? Like, wh why does that even, even matter? Well, I have three things is maybe why this, this matters for us today. The first is this, is that Jesus was enthroned as king through suffering and, and through death. Like, this is where everything changed. This is where he defeated the power of sin and idolatry that holds people captive. And this is where he made a way for people to flee from that captivity through forgiveness. Like, suffering was the way for Jesus. Jesus knows and understands suffering. And I just know, just simply by percentage, I also know because I know you. I know a lot of you in this room. I just know that suffering is part of life. And I know that many of you and us are suffering right now in a bunch of different ways. But Jesus knows the way of suffering. He knows your suffering and he doesn't want us to walk in that suffering alone. N.T. Wright kind of, if you would allow me to share one more quote from him, he kind of talks about this in a great way. Uh, he says, Jesus doesn't give an explanation for the pain and sorrow of the world. He comes where the pain is most acute and takes it upon himself. Jesus doesn't explain why there is suffering, illness, and death in the world. He brings healing and hope. He doesn't allow problem, the problem of evil to be the subject of a seminar. He allows and he allowed evil to do its worst to him. He exhausted it, drains its power, and emerges with new life. And we'll get there in a couple weeks.
Yesterday I was with some friends, some family friends, and their daughter, was, it was her birthday recently, and so she was getting presents, and she got some cool gifts. And, and one of them was a, like a ring, right, that had a, a cross in it. And she was like, oh, she kind of joked, I'm a Jesus girl or whatever. And, and then she was like, it's kind of weird, isn't it, that I wear, I'm wearing a, a cross as jewelry? That I would wear a cross as on a necklace or on a, on a ring, that it become a, a piece of, of adornment, of, of jewelry? That we would wear a, a torture device as a way of like to, to look nice? I don't know, it's just, it's, it's interesting is what she was saying. But here, according to, to John, like the cross wasn't simply a place where Jesus suffered and died. It's where he changed everything. It's, again, where he established his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. One of the things we've talked about at different times, if you've been around for a while, is that, is that Jesus is, was really like the, the intersection between heaven and earth, the intersection between God and, and humanity. Jesus held that all together at one point when he was both man and God at, at the same time. Like he is that, that intersection. It's, it's the intersection of heaven and earth. Some people will talk about it as being the temple. But, but for us in this picture, the cross literally became the intersection, the place where heaven and earth met. And I don't think it's lost on, on me and hopefully not on you that like that the, the cross structure is one that is vertical that goes, I mean, if we believe that that's the way it works, like that it goes up towards God, like it's between us and, and God. And yet it also is like, horizontal, which is like represents all of humanity. It's this place where the, the ways of God and the ways of man are brought together to be where Christ is and to bring redemption and, and healing and forgiveness and, and all of those things. And it's because of that that the Christ is no longer a symbol of death, but it's a reminder for us of the power of love. And that leads us to the second thing, which is that his suffering, Jesus' suffering, was actually more than just a, a debt to be paid. And, and it's, it's not that it wasn't. It, it was a debt to be paid, but it was also a display of love. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't just a means to an end. Rather, it was a deep and transcendent demonstration of self-giving love. Let me just look at a few more examples from the New Testament where we see this. And these are just like random verses. Not random, I picked them out on purpose. But it says like, this is how we know love. He laid down his life for us. In 1 John, this is John writing this. John who's writing the gospel as well, but in 1 John chapter 3. And then later in 1 John, he says, love consists of this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. And then later on in John 4, we love because he first loved us. And then Galatian, Paul writes this. He says, the son of God. And then he goes on and says, loved me and gave himself for me. And then in Romans, Paul would write, this is how God demonstrates his own love for us. The Messiah, the, the promised king died for us while we were still sinners. And then John, earlier in John, if you remember, Jesus said this, or John wrote this, sorry. He had always loved his own people in the world. Now he loved them right through to the end. I don't know if this is the same for you, but I actually have a difficult time like really just understanding and maybe even receiving and just wrapping my mind around this love. Like I can read those verses. I think intellectually I can understand it. But have you ever been loved by somebody? I'm hoping that you have. <laughs> a parent, a spouse, 
a good friend. Man, and, and when you're loved by someone, at some point you've probably, like, you've probably been held, right? You've, you've been given a hug, some sort of an embrace, a, a stroke on your back, whatever. There's, there was some contact where like you knew intellectually, like the person says, I love you. And they, they do the things that they maybe demonstrate love in a, out in the things that they do and say. But, but until you've been held, until you've been touched, until you've been embraced, and that's when you like can feel the love of another person. Like that is just a glimpse of what we are meant to experience when we're feeling the love of God. And I don't know if this is the same for you, but the, I struggle. I don't know if I've, I want to feel that. I want to experience that kind of love of God, the kind of love that we see written in Scripture. We're not just intended to understand it. We're intended to experience it. That's when it says, when, when Paul talks about knowing the love of God, it's not just simply knowing in our minds, but it's experiencing it in our heart, mind, soul. Like every part of us is meant to experience the love of God. I think that's why Paul in Ephesians, he prayed this for the the church in Ephesus, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. To grasp that, to understand it, and to know, that this, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I think that's why we, why we move towards Jesus. I think it's why we, we try to, in a sense, spend time with him. It's why we try to put in practice in our lives that, that place us in a position where we might experience and encounter God in, in, in ways where he wants to, to meet us. And that's certainly like as we read our Bibles and, and as we pray, but there's, there's just a number of different ways that we just move towards Jesus in that way. And, and I think all of it, like why... We, why is that even important? Like, certainly we should feel the love of God, but it's, I don't think God just wants us to run around like, man, I just had a great hug, and then that's it. Like, I mean, a great hug is awesome, but, but the, the love of God is actually intended to, to change and shape us. The last third thing is this, is that the self-giving love that we see in, in Jesus in this entire story, it's the way of Jesus. Self-giving love is the way of Jesus. Jesus' invitation for us to follow him, if you haven't figured this out yet, it's going to consistently lead us back to and through the cross, laying our lives down, taking up our cross, and giving ourselves away for others. Like that is the, that is the way of Jesus. And it's the way that Jesus as we see in this story and as we see in the Gospels and we see in the, the biblical narrative, it's the way that, that God, through Jesus, changed everything. And to be honest, it's the way by which, by which the world will continue to be changed as our lives begin to look a little bit more cross-shaped, like through our cross-shaped lives. Scott McKnight uses the term cruciformity, like that our lives would be cruciformed formed and shaped actually by the cross of Jesus. And Jesus invites those who are following him into this new way of life. This is for many of us, honestly, like, like the self-giving love, 
it's a struggle always, but it might even just be a new way of looking at it. This is the new way to to live. This is actually a new way of of being human. I'm not just meant to experience the love of God, but that love of God is meant to transform me so that the rest of my life can be be spent handing out self-giving love. That's the invitation. And so the question, maybe for us, and we talked about this the last few weeks, what's, what's our response? Well, today, our response is actually going to be to, to take a meal together. And the meal might be the wrong word because it looks so small, but, but it is a meal nonetheless. And it's no accident that all of this part of the story takes place in Passover. If you read in chapter 18 and chapter 19, like the Passover is, this is the time when the Passover was taking place. And, and again, the Passover, if you don't understand that, that's when like Israel was getting ready to be like rescued from Egypt, right? And, and God tells them to just like go into your house, sacrifice a lamb, put blood on the doorpost. I'm going to pass over every door that is, is covered with, with the blood of the, the innocent lamb. And then you will be able to just leave. You will be able to, to flee. You will be rescued from captivity. You'll be rescued from Egypt. And so because of that significant event and then their Beyond that, their, their exodus through the Red Sea and out into the Promised Land eventually, like they went back and remembered this often. And so when Jesus wanted his disciples to understand and know what his death was going to mean, he didn't just give them a bunch of doctrine. He didn't just give them a bunch of, of head knowledge or, or even a theory. He gave them a meal that would help them to, to look back towards the exodus for sure, but it was going to look forward to this new exodus, this new rescue that, that God had planned and prepared and put in place through Jesus, elevated on the king so that they could escape captivity, so that they could escape the, the sin and, and the darkness and the idolatry into to what he would describe as, as this promised land, this, this new life, an abundant life in Christ. And so this morning, as we come to the table, like we're going to come like ready to receive that invitation from Jesus, an invitation to be grateful for the suffering and the sacrifice that he was willing to, to go through so that we could come and, and remember that. It was, it's an invitation not only into that, but it's an invitation to receive the love of God, maybe in a fresh way as we understand even better what it means and, and what it means for us. And then an invitation as well to give love away, to not just simply come and receive a warm hug, but to be willing to, to pour out a self-giving love as we are shaped and transformed by this meal together. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to, to stand up and, and come down and, and just to take these elements, to receive them and, and bring them back to your seat. And then we're going to actually partake of them together. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. And then as you're ready, you can come down and, and grab these. Jesus, thank you for your life and your love, your suffering and your sacrifice. We come to this table ready to receive, ready to thank, ready to be transformed, ready to remember. May you bless it as we come. Amen.